This is Garth from the Lost Cabin, somewhere in rural Massachusetts. We're going to be returning to Dogtown to hear the second part of our three-part series. We're going to try and put you in the frame of mind of somebody who lived there 200 years ago, because it's always 1828 somewhere. If you lived in Massachusetts at the beginning of the 19th century, you might think that the Lord's wrath was upon you and that Judgment Day was rapidly approaching. America's newfound independence was threatened by lurking British ships that frequently shelled the coast and extorted payment from seaside towns. There were days when the sun itself vanished in a black sky and at night the moon appeared to be covered in blood. In 1816, summer never came. A blizzard struck New England in June. Birds literally fell from the sky frozen. Livestock dropped dead in the fields. July frosts killed the crops. And trees refused to bear fruit. Famine gripped New England. And a typhoid outbreak took millions of souls throughout the known world. The next summer... Dozens of sailors and residents of Gloucester witnessed sea monsters of various descriptions and sizes in the waters around Cape Ann, as if the beast from the Book of Revelations was coming out of the sea. And on November 17, 1833, fire itself seemed to fall from the sky at night, bringing fear and wonder throughout the land. This was the way the world was and the terror that the residents of Dogtown lived in. Welcome back. This is going to be our part two episode covering Dogtown, Massachusetts. Now, I split this particular topic up into three episodes for a few reasons. One is that there's a lot of information and it's an interesting place. The other reason is that you can kind of say that uh, the life of this location, of this ghost town, sort of has three parts to it, three eras. Sort of its, its founding, its development, then its decline, and finally its rebirth as a, a usable open space. And of course, this second episode is going to be covering parts of the decline and parts of the, the mystery and some of the unfortunate things that have happened in Dogtown. Now, if you haven't listened to the first episode on Dogtown, you should probably go back and, and hear it. Uh, the previous episode from last week, where we talked about the phantoms, the phantom leaguers of Gloucester, actually kind of feeds in to... Uh, some of the mysterious things that happen in this area between Gloucester and Rockport. And uh, that's good information to have on hand as we go forward. And that period that the Gloucester leaguers occurs in is sort of right before the official or semi-official founding of the, uh, the Dogtown area. The interesting thing about these stories, especially when we think about not too far away, 
Salem, Massachusetts, which we'll be covering in the next episode, is that the unfortunate folks in Salem who were put on trial and eventually executed, and that includes not only women, but also men and some dogs. I don't know how they put the dogs on trial. I'm going to have to look at that again. But dogs were executed and accused of witchcraft. The thing about those poor folks is that none of the people who were tried and executed in Salem were actually witches. But in Cape Ann, around Gloucester and Rockport, it seems like they actually had real witches. So, first of all, sit back and hear a tale about Meg Wesson, a witch of Cape Ann. A bonnet laced with withered poppies and necklaces of eels were part of the apparel of old Meg, a Cape witch much dreaded for her uncanny powers. Because of her, hens didn't lay, fish escaped nets, and pigs devoured their own young, all prompted, perhaps, by the treatment old Meg received at the hands of the young men of Gloucester. Since girlhood, they had mocked her and subjected her to an endless series of foul pranks. Often, however, when they came too close to her wretched hovel or her weedy garden, they were attacked by a fearful raven an enormous ebony bird with a peculiar jagged mark of white under one wing. No one doubted that it was old Meg herself, and to destroy the creature, silver, the pure weapon against the bewitched, was needed. Between them, the poor boys possessed not a nubbin of the precious metal big enough to fit into a slingshot. March of 1745, the governor of Massachusetts organized a military expedition against the French. A hundred Cape Ann men enlisted in a motley militia known at the time as Pepperell's Yokels. Gathering for a final celebration at a local tavern, the men's merriment was interrupted by the sudden entrance of old Meg out of a foggy night. Taking one look at the Cape Ann boys, she flung back her greasy black hair and shrieked, Soldier lads, ha! You'll burn in ice under the walls of the Lueberg, and the French will sell your scalps to your mamas within the fortnight. It was a terrible curse, and it made many a brave Cape Ann man tremble more than the thought of a gunshot. The campaign itself was wretched. Disease, icy cold, and malnutrition took their toll on the ill-trained and poorly equipped troops. To this day, it isn't clear what turned the tide in favor of the unlikely Yankee forces, unless it was the demise of old Meg. One day under the French stronghold, a huge raven, its underwing zigzagged with white, was seen circling above the hapless troops and shrieking with delight. At once, the Cape Ann boys recognized old Meg, remembering her curse. 
One lad tore two silver buttons from his uniform and fitted them one at a time into his musket. The first shot broke the bird's leg. The second brought down it dead. Two days later, after a siege lasting 49 days, Louisburg fell to its attackers, and the ragged Cape Ann militia began the 500-mile trek home. Throughout Gloucester, celebrations were held upon its return. A great party was given at the same tavern in which the adventure had launched, and during it one soldier described the shooting of the raven. She had an underwhite, just like old Meg, those in the tavern who had been home told the soldiers that old Meg had died on the very same day of a broken leg and inside her they found two silver buttons that was a reading from Haunted New England, A Devilish View of the Yankee Past by Mary Eastman and Mary Bolte. So in that story about Meg Wesson, you might notice a repeat detail from another story. In our last episode about the spectral leaguers of Gloucester, you'll notice that the uh, attacks from these supposed spectral troops were finally repelled when a defending Ipswich soldier took buttons, silver buttons, from his uniform and used those as bullets. And the exact same thing happened in this story about Meg Wesson. So you had soldiers who were fighting the French who shot a bird with two silver bullets that apparently ended up being found inside of the witch's dead body. And of course, the first question I ask is, who's cutting open an old woman's body to look for silver buttons? So whenever you see an element like this pop up in two different stories about ghosts or witches or whatnot, you can see that these are really pieces of folklore that have been weaved together later. And it becomes more difficult to tell what the true story really is. And there are lots of different accountings of Meg Wesson. But turning to Dogtown itself, we have to set the stage and recognize that it wasn't originally called Dogtown. That was a nickname that came much later. Of course, there was no town and there were no dogs at one point when purple people first arrived. The uh, settlement was actually simply called the Commons or the Commons Settlement. And of course, a commons was a place where everyone in a town could bring their animals to graze. And that was even the case for Boston Commons as well. And this particular settlement in the interior of Gloucester and Rockport, at its height, had a hundred thriving families who were engaged in farming. And they were, for a while, happy in this place. If you look at a historic map of Dogtown, which I'll provide in the show notes, you'll notice all of the different marked houses and cellar holes. And when you hike through Dogtown, 
you can look for and find these locations. A number of them are even marked on the trail itself, along with the names of the people who lived there. So you can see, historically, this was a populous area. But the land itself was problematic. It wasn't really good for farming. You'll see that there are many boulders around. And people at the time commented that it actually looked like a big cemetery when the trees were cleared. There was also a problem of a swamp. The swamp nearby, which is still there, became a trap for grazing animals. As industries and economies shifted, this became a not very desirable place to live. Additional changes within the society made it even less so. In 1812, most of the world was at war. The French Empire, under the direction of Napoleon Bonaparte, had taken most of Europe, including Spain, Italy, Germany, Austria, Prussia, and they were planning to invade Russia. The empire included portions of Africa and huge swaths of North and South America. It was the largest empire the world had seen since the age of the Romans. Britain led a small coalition against Napoleon. And as British forces were tied up in Europe and elsewhere on the high seas, some people in the new United States thought it was a good opportunity to seize Canada, the portion of North America still controlled by Britain. The United States and Britain were growing rivals on the seas. They met in frequent clashes on the ocean. And according to some, the British were supporting a Shawnee confederacy of tribes in the West to resist and attack expansion in the United States. Trappers and explorers reported that the Shawnee warriors were carrying British-made rifles that were possibly shipped in from Canada. It also became difficult for the United States to trade with other European countries since Britain was blocking trade with anybody who was under Napoleon's control. The war would soon come to New England and specifically to Massachusetts. The War of 1812 had profound and lasting effects on Massachusetts due to its disruption of sea commerce. In the beginning, Mass was untouched, but soon the British Navy set up a blockade and began extorting and attacking towns up and down the coast. The British attacked the USS Chesapeake in Boston Harbor, seizing the ship and imprisoning its crew in Nova Scotia. The British shelled and raided towns in Cape Cod, burned ships in situate and Cohasset harbors. By 1814, the British were seeming to be staging an all-out invasion of Massachusetts. And in response, 
the state sent 5,000 men to defend Boston and reinforce existing fortifications. After various failed attempts in Massachusetts and major battle losses elsewhere in the U.S., a peace treaty was agreed on with Britain in December of 1814. The War of 1812 came directly to Cape Ann. The previous War for Independence and other conflicts created many widows, and this new conflict with the British drew more men away from the fisheries and farms. The British loomed around Cape Ann and destroyed its major industries by seizing fishing vessels and killing livestock. The captured boats were ransomed back to the residents for $200 each. The British persistently attacked the coastlines of Rockport and Gloucester. In one incident, you can still see the results today. It was typical for the residents of Rockport to ring the church bell if they saw the British were about to attack. And as the church bell began to ring, the British fired directly at the bell tower. And that shot can still be seen in the side of the tower today. If the War of 1812 kept Cape Ann in a state of fear, the end of the war solidified the transition of the Commons into a darker time of Dogtown. While the Commons had been declining for some time, it completely changed as people returned to the shore for fishing and sea commerce. Those who could leave the Commons did. Those who couldn't often stayed behind by themselves. And then other people, people who were less desirable, started moving into the empty settlement. Any formal structure of the settlement probably died with Jane Day, who was the town schoolteacher. She passed away at the age of 94 in 1814. If you go to the Dogtown settlement today, you'll have to go to the end of Cherry Street. And if you were here in the 19th century, you might have to get permission to cross this road from a woman who was called Queen of the Witches, whose real name was Thomasine Tammy Younger. She would extract payment for people crossing through Dogtown. She would demand whatever they had in their cart, whether it was food or grain or animals. And if you didn't pay her, she would put a hex on you. It's a curiosity for us today to imagine a haunted place populated by witches. But there's another way to look at it. In this time, 
women who had outlived their husbands or women who, for whatever reason, were unmarried and had no other means of income, were outcasts. They were often looked at with suspicion or possibly even guilt and ignored. And in order to get attention, they would have to do unorthodox things. Also imagine the physical transformation of the commons into Dogtown. Originally, this was a land that was cleared of trees. And as the farmers left, it became overgrown. The houses that used to be full of life were now dark. The roads themselves would have been patrolled by loose dogs. This became a strange place on the outskirts of other places that were being built up, like Gloucester and Rockport. Other places nearby that were actually seeing an increase in population. The people who lived in Dogtown developed reputations for their unseemly businesses. While Judy Rhines was called a witch, in reality, Rhines and Molly Jacobs and Liz Tucker comprised what was Dogtown's red light district. Another house of ill repute was an abandoned building taken over by Rachel Smith and her mother, Becky Rich. They essentially ran an illegal tavern. And because Becky told fortunes and Rachel made potions, they were also considered witches. Such a place that encouraged drinking, dancing, and music would have been off-limits in proper society. Such a place that was often a distance in the woods would have been considered pure evil by some people. As woods reclaimed the town, as residents died or moved out, it must have seemed like a whole haunted place. The last resident was a freed slave named Cornelius Finzen, who literally had to be pulled from a frozen cellar. The last house was torn down in 1845. One hundred and fifty years ago, long before the ghost towns of the Old West created by the Gold Rush, Dogtown was already a ghost town. It had lived life cycles as a prosperous community and then as a wicked place. And now it was a haunted place. In 1858, it was visited by Henry David Thoreau, who described it as a vast wilderness 
full of boulders and swamps and haunted in the moonlight. We're not done with Dogtown yet. There's still more to come. But for now, after the commercial, I'm going to give you directions to the church tower where you can see the cannon shot of the British from the War of 1812. If you want to find the cannonball from the War of 1812, you'll need to go to downtown Rockport and look for the First Congregational Church of Rockport, United Church of Christ, on 12 School Street, Rockport, Massachusetts. Stand in front of the church and look up at the tower. Find the column to the slightly left side, and just above halfway up, you'll see a dark circle. And that is where the cannonball rests to this day. This is Garth from The Lost Cabin. We hope you enjoyed this episode, part two, about Dogtown. Come back in November for part three. But for now, on the crossroads in Dogtown, give her a fish or some coins from your pocket, and maybe she'll let you cross. Hey, if you like the show for some reason, there are lots of ways you can join the fun or get a hold of us. You can message Lost Mass through the podcast apps on Anchor. There's a voice option. Or you can go to lostmassachusetts.com and subscribe to our blog or use the various methods there to contact us. If you go to lostmassachusetts.com, you can also sign up to get a postcard from a lost place and find out where to send us a lost postcard too. Also go to Lost Massachusetts at uh, Instagram for photos and other details. We will do our best to respond to comments uh, directly uh, as well as within the show. You might hear um, your own comment. That's fun. <laughs>